Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When I was in my 30s, um, I was on the subway one day and there was this lady with an amazing looking cupcake. Uh, it was sort of at the beginning of the cupcake movement, you know? Um, and so I just started talking to her about this cupcake and uh, by the end of our conversation, she had taught me that people can ride ostriches. And, uh, <laughs> to, you know, that's not something I needed to know, but I was, I was intrigued. You know, it was, it was a fun thing to learn. And, and so I was just kind of hooked from that point on. Um, I yeah. just sort of started having these conversations with sort of random people. And I just felt good when I did it. And I felt like I sort of belonged and I was sort of part of this, you know, human co collective. And so that's why I decided that's what I wanted to study for my PhD. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jillian, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across uh, your research in one of the two books that I was reading, The Friendship Book by Lydia Denworth, who was also a guest here, or the other one, uh, which was Vivek Murthy's new book on loneliness. And when I saw that you were somebody who researches talking to strangers for a living, I thought, okay, I have to talk to you because that's kind of what I do, but you get to do it in a very different context. And you probably have a lot more science behind it, which is something that I tend to absolutely love. So uh, absolutely thrilled to have you here. But before we get into your work, I want to start by asking what I think is a very fitting question, given the nature of your background. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Wow, I've never had that question before. Um, I, I don't know if I was part of a particular group in high school, which is an interesting thing to think about, because I was sort of, I did the sports stuff, and I did the music stuff, and I was, I, I felt like I kind of knew everybody a little bit, but wasn't really part of any particular group, and that's sort of a theme throughout my life. You know, I've, yeah. I always sort of feel this motivation to know everybody, if that's possible. Uh -huh. um, so I, I played in a badminton club for many years, and I sort of went out of my way to try and chat with everybody during the break. And by the time I left the badminton club, I feel like I pretty much knew every single person who was in it. So for yeah. some reason, I have, I have that kind of built-in motivation to know everybody, although getting close to any one person or group of people is, is a little harder. 
That's what I was going to ask you next. Actually, you kind of <laughs> you kind of beat me to the to the punch. But um, what I wonder, you know, when you say you know everybody, because like I've seen certain people who, to me, are sort of chameleons in high school, and they can navigate different social groups. My sister was like that, and I remember going to the mall with her at Christmas time, and I was like, "We can't get five feet without you running into somebody." And you know, you were actually popular in high school. Like I was kind of a geek, you know, like I hung out with the band nerds and the smart kids and that was kind of it. Um, so do like, do you think that, uh, one, there's something about people like that that just makes them, you know, uh, likable to other people, this ability to navigate, you know, different social groups. And like, did you consider yourself popular given the fact that you knew all of these people? Uh, not especially. No, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of why I did have a bit of a strange situation because my dad actually taught at the high school that I went to. Um, so that so that sort of changed how people thought about me too. But I, I feel I'm I feel I'm an introvert. Um, so mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was you know super outgoing. I feel like maybe maybe what makes what I'm describing possible is that I'm a very good listener. I'm good at getting other people to talk, um, uh-huh. and people really like that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, when you give people yeah. an opportunity to talk, they're they're generally pretty happy to talk about themselves. So, um, uh, so I feel like it's almost the opposite of what what you're saying. Like it's not that I'm a super extroverted, outgoing, sociable person. I feel almost exactly the opposite. Well, it's funny because it's such an odd contrast, right? You'd think yeah. of it as, oh, this is a person who talks to strangers uh, for a living. Like this is what you do your research. And so my natural instinct would be like, oh, this person has to be somewhat extroverted to even begin that. But I, I see where you're going with this because it makes sense that people um, want to be heard and listened to. So we'll get there. But uh, the thing that you mentioned struck my, you know, caught my attention. And I, I kind of, like I said, that was kind of my next question is if you're a person who wants to know everybody a little bit, how does that impact your sort of deeper friendships and deeper relationships? Well, I mean, I look at sort of talking to strangers, I'm pivoting a little bit from what you asked, but I think it, it's it's relevant. I look at talking to strangers as kind of like anything in life. It, you're not going to expect to love every single book that you read or every single movie that you watch. You're going to watch a lot of them and every once in a while you're going to have a favorite, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think you know, you need to talk to a lot of people to find someone that you really connect with. And, you know, we, we hope, hopefully many of us have experienced that situation where we meet someone for the first time and we just feel that sort of instant connection and it's magical and we all kind of look for it, don't we? Um, but I think you can't expect to have that unless you have lots of conversations. Yeah. So I want to come back to this. But how in the world did you get into this work? Because, you know, like, I don't imagine this is one of the things I mean, and this is pretty common to almost everybody that I talked to at Unmistakable Creative. Like, none of these careers are things that your high school guidance counselor is going to suggest you should go and do. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, the, the, I'll, I'll do the long version of the story. You can edit it if you want. <laughs> um, I actually did an undergraduate degree in computer science, so something totally different. And I didn't dislike it, but I didn't feel like it was really sort of making me feel as good about my job as I kind of thought that people could feel. (laughs) Um, And so I was looking for what what to do instead. And so I was just basically, you know, think realizing that I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing was actually a lot easier than figuring out what did I want to do. Um, and how I did that was just 
I was just started paying attention, you know, just looking around and trying to to notice the things that were jumping out at me, things that, that made me feel interested and excited. And eventually I noticed that there was a lot of, a lot of, there was sort of a common thread, uh, which was psychology. Um, and I, I was kind of lucky in a way it was around the time that there was a shift in psychology. Um, and there was a movement towards positive psychology. So up until then, kind of like in the medical profession, for a very long time, the focus was on helping people feel better when they were unwell or fixing things that had gone wrong. And then it sort of expanded into looking at wellness as well. How can we keep people well so that they don't get sick in the first place? And psychology kind of had a similar shift, which was, you know, we don't need to just focus on people who are uh, struggling with mental illness or, um, you know, look at sort of the negative stuff like prejudice and and uh, compliance and all these kind of things. But we could also expand our focus and look at what helps people thrive and, and how do people be happy. <laughs> and I mm. thought that sounds like the coolest job I can imagine studying how to make people happy. Um, so that that's how I kind of came to psychology. But to this um, topic in particular, again, kind of, I feel like there's sort of two stories, which are both true, um, but it's hard to know. You know. I guess they kind of both explain how I got here. Um, one is that my, my dad has always talked to strangers. And so I grew up seeing him do that. And as a kid, it was, I felt it was kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I can relate. It made everything really uh, slow. You know, if we went to the grocery store, it would take forever because he would just stop and talk to everybody. Um, mm. And but but at the same time, I mean, sometimes we would learn something interesting from people he talked to, or you know, get a good tip on something, or you know, and I could see how much people enjoyed it and how much my dad enjoyed it. So so that's one thing. But that didn't I didn't do it myself. That it did that didn't translate into me having any interest in talking to strangers. I feel like I was quite shy. I was one of those people who, you know, if you had to make a phone call and, you know, at, get customer support or something, I, I just felt awkward and didn't want to do it. Um, and uh, and then when I was in my 30s, um, I was on the subway one day and there was this lady with an amazing looking cupcake. Uh, it was sort of at the beginning of the cupcake movement, you know. Um, and so I just started talking to her about this cupcake and uh, by the end of our conversation, she had taught me that people can ride ostriches. And, uh, <laughs> to, you know, that's not something I needed to know, but I was I was intrigued. You know, it was it was a fun thing to learn. And, and so I was just kind of hooked from that point on. Um, yeah. I just sort of started having these conversations with sort of random people. And it made me I just felt good when I did it. And I felt like. I sort of belonged and I was sort of part of this, you know, human co collective. And so that's why I decided that's what I wanted to study for my PhD. Wow. Well, I, you know, I can relate to learning weird things. I know how to rob a bank from having done this podcast. Amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. There are numerous things that I think were really interesting about sort of your path here. The, the very first one, you know, being sort of looking at what called out to you. It's funny because I'm writing an article right now about the five most important decisions that we'll ever make in our lives. And of course, you know, marriage, career, all that stuff came up. And, and you know, I was thinking about the career section and I was going back through Tina Selig's research who had, you know, told me, she said, you know, people come into to college thinking, oh, I don't have some sort of all-consuming passion. Or she says the opposite where they have their whole life mapped out. and 
I think that what you had told, you know, said that really struck me was that passion follows engagement. And of course, engagement comes from the things that are standing out to you. Um, mm. But what I wonder is, you know, as somebody who went to a, just like I went to Berkeley where I attempted computer science and realized I was horrible at it. Um, but the thing is that you made that decision early enough, early enough in your life to say, okay, look, I'm going to pay attention to the things that appear to be engaging. Why is it you think so many people actually don't do that only to find themselves like, you know, 60 years old and thinking, oh, I hate this job? Hmm. I mean, I think it would have been really easy for me to keep doing what I was doing. I mean, the reason I, I went into that field of study in the first place was because I was I was good at it. So I, I kind of started by looking at what skills do I have and what jobs could I do that would draw on those skills. Um, but I mean, I think I think your satisfaction at work depends a lot on enjoying the people that you're working with. Um, and it just didn't feel like my people. Um, and having said that, I look back now and, and my husband works in technology and he's worked with really cool people. And I think, you know, maybe it was just because I didn't look hard enough or, you know, there could have been other options if I had stayed in the field, I'm sure I could have been happy. Um, but yeah. Interesting. Well, all right, let's, let's actually get into your work and, and where I want to start as ridiculous as it sounds is to go all the way back to childhood, because like I was thinking about just the fact that when I was like reading your about page, I was thinking about how you know, I felt very comfortable talking to strangers. I mean, so much to the point where my dad literally started building his community in Edmonton, Alberta, when he came from India by calling the first person in the damn phone book who had a last name that was similar to last names from the, the state my parents are from. Like, that's how he said that they <laughs> met their closest friends. That's awesome. And I was like, are you serious? I was like, that's how you build a community. That's insane. Like nobody d does that now. I mean, which is, which is a beautiful thing, but what particular instruct me is like, I was thinking about what happens as we get socialized, just based on my, my own experience, right? You go through high school, you go through, you know, sort of elementary school, then you start to kind of figure out that, oh, I have a place in this social hierarchy that is created by junior high and I'm either nerdy, popular or whatever. And then the first time some girl rejects you, that starts to sort of create inhibition. But you've done the research. Like, where does our, at least for in my, my, that's my personal experience, but I'm much more curious about, like, where does that, like, where do we go from being, you know, sort of people who don't have this fear of talking to strangers to becoming so inhibited? Like, where does that begin? Um, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, that we sort of develop a fear of rejection, um, and, and I think that's true, not just talking to strangers, but, you know, we, we start fearing lots of things, don't we? We don't like failing. And so we don't try things if we're too concerned that we might not succeed at them. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think we sort of, I, I think there's multiple reasons. I think we kind of, as babies where we are born fearing other people. Um, so we have to kind of get over that first, but then there's all sorts of messages from society that we have to be careful about strangers. Um, so there's sort of these competing things, aren't there? You know, we're, we're social creatures and we want to connect to people, but then we're afraid if they, if they don't include us, that's going to feel terrible. Um, so yeah, we have to reconcile all these competing messages and competing thoughts. But um, my research and research from a few other people suggests that, you know, we don't get rejected as often as people fear, <laughs> you know, like we're walking around with this voice in our head saying, I can't talk to that person. They're not going to want to talk to me. But 
really they're they're probably happy to talk to you. They just don't want to talk to you first. <laughs> they want you to make the first move. Um, uh-huh. So we're all walking around hoping the other person will make the first move. Yeah. Well, let's let's go deeper into this. Um, what role do your parents play in how this inhibition develops? And also, like, what about your peers, like the people that you're around? Because, I, you know, like I said, once you kind of understand where you stand in the pecking order of like the junior high social hierarchy, you know, it's kind of like mean girls. You're like, all right, I am definitely not cool. So I wonder, you know, what roles those two groups play, parents and, and the people that you're friends with? Um, j- just speaking from my personal experience, I mean, it could probably, I, I think we, we always learn one of two things from the people that are important to us. One could be that we want to be more like them and we learn from them. Um, and so in a way I ended up doing that with my dad, you know, like I saw, saw how he did it, you know, I sort of absorbed what kinds of things he said, um, and how he'd get people talking. Um, and the other, the flip side is we might decide, oh, I don't like how this person is. And so I don't want to be like them. Or we sort of maybe don't feel the need to, you know, my, my dad was very social. My mom was also in her own way. And I feel like my brother was too. And so in a way I felt like, well, I don't need to be that person because that's already covered, you know? So I Mm -hmm. think that explains why I wasn't especially social when I was younger, because I felt like they were kind of doing it for me in a way. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, so the thing that, you know, as you were saying that that came to, to memory for me uh, was you know, I think at some point when I was, you know, in my like mid twenties, I was like, okay, you know what? I got to get over this fear of talking to women. It means I'm probably going to just talk to strangers at bars. And I remember going out to a bar one night with a group of friends, talking to a group of girls where two girls and it didn't go well. And those friends were not happy about the fact that they were associated with me because of how it went with that girl. And those friendships ended over that. Like that was the end of that social group. Okay. Another experience that I thought of that, as you were saying that was I dated this girl, you know, shortly, right, shortly after that, like, and she was my first girlfriend. And I remember talking to a couple outside of a restaurant, um, who was in San Francisco. We were waiting for like, you know, a really long time for our table. And so we were just chatting. And she was upset that I was socializing with them. As you might imagine, there's a reason I'm not, you know, it didn't work out with me and her. Um, but in moments like that, you know, like if you think about it, you, of course we care what our social groups matter, you know, think. I mean, it, like, am I thrilled that those friendships ended? No, not even close. So how do you, you know, deal with that tension? Wow. Um, <laughs> no idea. Um, that, that, that sounds crazy to me that, that your friends sort of, shunned you because some you know you attempted to talk to a girl at a bar and it didn't go well like doesn't that sound crazy to you that 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 was the outcome well, look th- that <laughs> y- yes of course it sounds crazy to me like you know it, it's kind of insane how many keep in mind i think you and i've had a large enough cross-section of, of people in our lives <laughs> given our you know backgrounds that that's just kind of is something that i'm like okay some people might be completely insane uh we don't, I mean, I, I don't remember it in enough detail. Maybe I did say something that I shouldn't have. Who the hell knows? Okay. All I know is that that was kind of the end of it with those friends. Um, and I remember that very distinctly. And in that girlfriend, I thought it was the strangest thing that she found it offensive that I was talking to strangers. And I was like, this is really bizarre. Like, I, I mean, was it that you were paying attention to someone else instead of her? Who knows? I mean, I, mean, I, no, I worry I about that sometimes. So. You know, I talk to strangers a lot because I feel like, yeah. you know, that. That resulted in my research, but now that I do the research, it sort of resulted in me talking to strangers more often. And I worry sometimes uh-huh. about, you know, when I'm with my husband and I'm talking to other people <laughs> that, that he kind of sometimes thinks, why is she doing this? Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I know he's benefited too, and I know he started doing it himself. So, um, yeah, well, it, yeah, it's so, so I guess I think the, the real you know place I want to take this is 
it seems to me that for almost anything you want in your life, this is an invaluable skill. Whether you want to go out on a date with a girl, potentially get a job. I mean, it seems like interactions with strangers could lead to all sorts of wonderful things in your life. I mean, I've literally yeah. had people become podcast listeners because one of my friends uh, who has also been a guest here, you might actually like what she's done. She created this this card deck called Serenflippity, which is basically designed Good to name. force you to talk through, <laughs> uh, talk to strangers through all these really random things like go ask a stranger for a mantra um, or buy a stranger, you know, a cup of coffee. And I remember like I bought coffee cool. for like the five people in line behind me at Starbucks one day and every one of them was like, who are you? I was like, just some dude who lives here. Uh and it, it kind of struck me that it was like, oh, that's that's interesting. But I think where where I, I want to go is like, you know, obviously through the experiences that I had and probably other people listening to this have had, at some point there starts to be this sort of inhibition, often I think, which comes from fear of rejection. And what I wonder is how we get past that. But where I want to start is with what is the most awkward conversation you've ever had with a stranger? I mean, I think about that a lot because sort of going back to something you said earlier, um, psychologically speaking, anything bad that happens weighs more heavily on us than good things that happen, right? So if one bad thing happens, that sort of outweighs, I don't know, three or five or however many good things. Um, so we really remember the bad stuff. So if at any point in time you have a bad conversation with a stranger, it's really going to stick with you and make you not want to talk to any more. And so... I, I've been, you know, tried to think about have I ever had what I would consider a bad conversation with a stranger? And I'm not sure I have. I mean, I've definitely had boring ones. I've definitely <laughs> had, um, you know, there's quite a few boring ones. Um, definitely had a situation once where I was on the bus and I started talking to someone and, you know, kind of thought, mm, this person's not all there. Um, but I, I mean, that wasn't, that didn't feel dangerous or scary or anything like that. Um, so, I don't know. Like, I, I actually don't feel like I've had a negative conversation. They're not always super pleasant or interesting. I guess recently I had a conversation with someone and uh, it, I, I started talking to him because he was carrying a net. And I said, why are you carrying a net? So often I, I'm sort of commenting on something that I'm observing and using my curiosity. And uh, he was rescuing fish. Uh, <laughs> so there had been a heavy rain and all the fish had gone to a certain spot. And then, and then the water had receded quite quickly because it's so hot in the summer. And the fish had gotten stuck in this spot. So he was capturing them in a net and moving them somewhere else so that they wouldn't die. And I thought, this is amazing. This guy is just, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, rescuing fish. Um, and, and then he, he kept talking and started talking about COVID and how the whole thing was a big conspiracy. And, <laughs> and my reaction was, oh, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, like I, I found that very awkward, but um, I don't know. I just try to be open-minded with other people. It doesn't matter if he thinks that and I don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I everybody has their own beliefs and it's not my job to try and convince them that mine are more right than theirs are. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about talking to strangers is that you can learn about different perspectives and different cultures and different ideas. And, you know, I just try to take it in. I, I And so with this, with this conspiracy theory guy, I didn't, I just sort of said, why do you think that? And, you know, just let him talk a little bit. And, you know, it wasn't an argument or anything like that. But 
um, I guess that's sort of my most recent sort of awkward interaction. <laughs> uh, one thing I was going to ask you is, uh, you know, in your research, have you like, what have you noticed is a difference between talking to kids and talking to adults and talking to men and talking to women? Well, kids is a big thing with my dad and he just loves talking to kids and he's got these special lines that he uses all the time that he knows will get them talking and get them laughing, even if they're really shy. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't seem to realize that maybe the parents aren't always super excited if he's talking to their kids. So I do think <laughs> you have to be extra careful, um, you know, not to make sure that to make sure that the parents know that you're not a threat and make the kids know that you're not a threat. Um, but but kids are often, you know, happy to talk to strangers. And I think it's probably great for them to get to know different people and you know, have the world be a little bit bigger because our worlds are quite small and constrained when we're younger, aren't they? Um, men and women. Yeah. That's, that's a really awkward one. I haven't, I haven't gone down that road with my research yet because it just seems like a, a Pandora's box, you know? Um, but I have people (laughs) tell me all the time, um, that it adds a sort of extra barrier of fear. So men don't want you know, they're a little bit nervous oh. about having a chat with a woman because they worry that the woman's going to think that they're hitting on them, um, even yeah. if they're not. <laughs> um, so even taking, you know, taking aside the idea that you're talking for the purpose of trying to, uh, you know, ask someone out, if it's just because you're trying to have a chat, it just sort of adds this extra thing that you're worrying about. Um yeah, yeah so it, it definitely makes things more complicated. Um well, the, the reason I brought that up is like, I'm trying to think back. It was like, okay, if I start a conversation with a female stranger who I find physically attractive, I'm like, that is definitely on my mind. I'd be lying to you if I told you it wasn't, sure. which is why I'm like, oh, okay. So there's got to be, I could see now why you would say that's a Pandora's box because, you know, if it's not somebody who I have any interest in in that way, I, it, it, there's no sort of pressure. It's like, oh, I can easily have this conversation. Um but I think the the other thing that caught my attention was you mentioned that you start with just sort of observing something and your curiosity. So, you know, for somebody who wants to develop this ability uh, or has lost it and wants to get it back, where do we begin? I mean, I think I think we all have a tendency or there's more of a tendency these days to shut ourselves off to the world like we're we've, we're plugging ourselves into the headphones and looking at our phones and I play a game sometimes at the underground in London I you know you go down this escalator to get down to the where the train is and so when I'm going down I'll try to make eye contact with people coming up is you know you can't talk to people unless you make eye contact first <laughs> that's the first step and that was for me the first step i you know like i said i used to be sort of more shy and i realized that i kept my eyes on the ground a lot and so it was a conscious like hard work <laughs> repetitive practice for me to make sure i was lifting my eyes and you know able to make eye contact um but i th- i think we sort of deliberately try to and, you know, it makes sense that the world is full of noises and sounds and sights and it's too much at times. And so we want to control that and we we try to block ourselves off. But if we do that, we're missing out on these other kinds of opportunities. Um, so, so yeah, I think if, if you're someone who wants to talk to strangers, but that sounds really scary and you don't know where to start, start by just looking at people. Just make eye contact um, and just start observing people. 
and paying attention to what they're doing. And I've started conversations with people based on what they're wearing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit careful. I, I don't want to come, but I don't ever comment on someone's appearance or give them a compliment like, oh, you're really beautiful or, you know, that's that just oh, feels really awkward to me. But I will comment on, you know, someone who's wearing airplane earrings or someone who's got a really amazing tie on or something like that. Um, that feels less charged to me. So I've commented on what people are wearing or what they're doing or what they're eating, um, <laughs> uh, what they're reading. Um, sometimes I feel awkward about that too, though, because obviously if they're reading, I'm interrupting, but, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but usually if you, if you're talking to them about books, um, uh-huh. you know, they're, yeah. you know, I, I, I'll start. And if I'm getting the message that they really, really don't want to talk and they just want to read their book, then I leave them alone. Yeah. But, there's okay, no so harm. We'll, we'll come back. Try. <laughs> we'll we'll come back to that uh, because that's that's interesting. So I want to go back to the eye contact thing, and I think it was uh, in Sarah Rose Cavanaugh's book that she just wrote uh, called Hive Mind that I was I, I came across something, and I don't remember which research uh, it was or whose work she was referring to, but it, you know there was this contrast of eye contact. In like one case, you know, <laughs> looking at this person the right way means they want to kill you. The other means they want to fuck you. You need to find somewhere in between. <laughs> And so I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting way to look at it because eye contact done the wrong way can be really creepy. So I'd imagine there's some sort of like modulation to this. I'm sure you're probably right. And now I'm going to be worried about it. (laughs) Um, I'll I'll send you the link to Sarah's book so you can figure out who it was and talk to that guy. um, I don't know. I just try to have a genuine smile and I usually nod at people too because otherwise they see you smiling and they just they they think well you couldn't possibly be smiling at me so I usually kind of do a little nod as well to say yes I am smiling at you (laughs) um and I think I I'm just I'm I know that I need to be a little bit patient you know so I used to talk to people on the bus all the time and I just assume that their first reaction is going to be do I know you and then they're going to realize, uh oh, no, I don't. Uh, are you crazy? Um, and but I know if I'm patient that they'll get to the point where they realize I'm just being friendly, and then everything will yeah. be okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I obviously the norm in our society isn't in, in many places, not all places, and not all situations. I mean, when pe- people go to the park and walk their dog or go to a playground, you know, it's totally normal to talk to fellow dog walkers or fellow parents or talk to the taxi driver. So there's certain situations where it's relatively normal. Um, but in general, it's not it's not the norm in our society. And so people are going to wonder what you're doing, but they'll get over that. So you just have to mm-hmm. be a little bit patient. Yeah. Well, so you brought up three things. You said, you know, eye contact, uh, smiles, you know, sort of observational cues. Then we went to the thing about reading books. Like if you ask me about a book that I'm reading, I'll talk your ear off for 30 minutes uh, because I'm a total book nerd. And like, that's pretty much what I spend all my money on. I mean, I'm an author, so like books are my jam. But I, I think that what I'm more curious about is gauging sort of, oh, this person really doesn't want to talk to me or wants to be left alone, but somehow they were willing to engage enough to answer the question. Yeah, good point. I mean, I just <laughs> naively assume that I'll be able to tell somehow <laughs> if they're not wanting to talk or if they are wanting to talk. Again, it comes down to attention and sort of being observant and, you know, looking at their body language and that kind of thing. So I guess I, I, 
sometimes feel reluctant to start the conversation at all because I'm worried that I'll bother them, but I often will do it anyway and give it a chance, um, Mm -hmm. but be open to the fact that they might not want to talk. Yeah. So what's, you know, fascinating to me about this is, is I wonder if this can be trained because like, I know even with a podcast guest, for example, I'm like the the notorious ruthless person who will literally cut the conversation in the middle if I feel like it's not going well, (laughs) like you know. And I've pissed some people off, and I don't care um, that I've done that. And and I can feel it just from the sound of their voice or the dialogue that we're having. That wait a minute, this person actually doesn't want to talk to me, so I have no idea why they agreed to do the interview. Um, But so so what I what I, I guess what I'm getting at is you know it seems to me as I'm listening to you describe this. That in my mind, I'm trying to basically do the opposite of what I tell people to do, which is that it's not possible to reverse anybody's advice into some sort of formula, which is I realize what I'm trying to do. And it seems like there's a lot of this that is sort of uh, like intuition based and it only comes from the experience of doing it over and over and over. Well, to go back to something you said ages ago, I mean, I think I think the key is to do it a lot. (laughs) I think it's only practice that's going to help us get better. I think, you know, social skills are skills like anything else. And and like you said, I mean, it applies to so many domains. There are so many areas of your life where you kind of need to talk to people in order to make stuff happen. Um, And so guess what? If you don't practice how to do that, then you have a lot of pressure in a situation. Like, you know, if if you haven't... gone up in a bar and talked to a girl a bunch of times, that's a scary situation, of course. Um, and But I think even practicing talking to other people would help you feel more comfortable in that situation. So practicing talking to strangers might help you feel more comfortable talking to a girl in the bar. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the key is just to keep doing it. And, and like I said earlier, I don't expect every conversation is going to be amazing, but what I love about doing it personally is that I know I can talk to pretty much anybody pretty much any time and have a decent conversation and that I'll often have an interesting conversation. And it's it's not that any one of them is especially memorable, but the fact that I can talk to so many people just makes me think that the world isn't so bad, you know, like we're all yeah. connected and, you know, feel more trust in other people. And and that I think is the the big benefit for me personally. So I selfishly want to go back to the girl in the bar, as my listeners always joke to like everyone of Srini's guests is some attempt to solve his personal problems. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the reason I asked that is, and this is this is what came to mind, is that and I think this is particularly true when it comes to romantic rejection, is that we tend to take one person's opinion and make it a universal truth. So like one girl rejects you and you're like, okay, now not a single girl at this bar will talk to me. And I remember very distinctly reading something in one of Mark Manson's books where he literally talked to two groups of women in the same night. One group told him to fuck off and the second group came up to him and said, you're the hottest guy in here. You could go home with any way you want. Same girls, same, or, you know, same bar, two different girls, same opening line. And that really struck me. But the thing is that most of us don't see that in that context. We tend to make the first opinion universal. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said earlier, that's sort of the bad is stronger than the good thing going on, too. And, and, you know, teachers of all kinds get evaluations from students. We remember that one terrible one instead of the 50 (laughs) people who said, you're the best teacher ever. We only remember that one person who said, 
that they didn't like us. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, not everybody's going to like you you're, and you're not going to like everybody either. Right. I mean, uh-huh. you, don't, you don't like everybody that you come across. So why would you expect everybody would like you? <laughs> Am I right? That, should, that, that I, I, have to, I might have to use that as a quote card from your interview. That, that, it's actually very true. Like I, I never thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, you're right. And I think that we we're so bothered by that, though, and you know, with the uh, idea that there are people who don't like us. But yeah, there are people who don't like me. I remember um, reading something once, and it was it was about someone. I can't remember the context, but it was about auditioning as an actor um, and the idea that you know, you try out for so many parts. And I mean, think about what that must be like. They, they're just rejected all the time. Um, you have to be a pretty strong person and know yourself really well to be okay with that. Um, yeah. But the, the idea was, hey, they rejected you because they're looking for an apple and you're a pear and you're a really great pear, but you're not an apple and they're looking for an apple. Huh. And I kind of love that idea. <laughs> yeah, me too. So um, I know that you're doing, uh, you know, some new research. So I want to ask you two questions uh, before we talk about the the new pro- your research that you're working on. Um, one is, is technology. You know, you mentioned earlier that you know most of us are, you know, with our heads down. You know, we're like, you know, buried faces buried in screens. And I, I'm guilty of this too. And I, I remember the first time I really recognized how bad it had gotten. I had gotten off of a plane uh, and I'd been living in Costa Rica for several months. And I walked into the airport and I literally didn't see anybody's face looking up. Every single person's face was buried in a screen. And I thought, wow. And, and the crazy thing is I saw it in India too this time. And I was like, wow, this is happening everywhere. So as somebody who does what you do, like, you know, how do we, how do we navigate this? Because I know there are pros and cons to this as well. For people who feel socially awkward, this can be a often like a social outlet that makes them feel less lonely. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I love about social media is, you know, when when my friends post pictures of something that they've been doing, and then next time I see them, I know how to start the conversation, don't I? I can ask them about, yeah. you know, those pictures that I saw. Um, and, and that's kind of nice. Um, uh, and I, I remember the first time Facebook said, hey, you just friended this one person. Did you know they're also friends with this other person that you know? And I was like, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, that because I would never have known that. And it and so it was just really cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean I I don't want to slam social media, but I mean so I, I teach a class at the University of Essex on positive psychology and we give our students little homework assignments every week. And one week um, the, the homework is to do a, de- a social media detox. And, uh, you know, every year when we do this, students tell us that they, they kind of realize that being on social media as much as they are isn't great. And they really kind of feel better. And a lot of people feel better. Um, they, you know, you can also feel sort of like you're missing out on things, but, a lot of people say they feel better after taking a bit of a break. So, I mean, I don't think it's about going whole hog either way. I'm not saying you have to quit social media, but, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, I, I, I have had days where I just go check Twitter very quickly. And next thing I know I've wasted (laughs) God knows how many (laughs) minutes I'll say minutes. Um, and I think, what did I learn or what did I, did I benefit from this? And, you know, yeah. to be fair today, I saw a video of goats dancing to sting, staying alive and it was really awesome. So, you know, <laughs> Twitter for the win, but. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's, it's funny. I had a, an old business partner who told me he's just started Googling political officials and like within an hour he was reading about spirit cooking. And I'm like, okay, dude, was <laughs> like how you went down that rabbit hole is beyond me. So one other question about this, and, and then I want to have you talk about what you're working on now. Um, how do you think COVID is going to affect, you know, this sort of talking to strangers? Because like, I remember even... Um, Lydia Denworth, when we were talking about friendship, she said that, you know, I think we're going to fall into each other's arms. Like, I remember even one of my friends who was a dating coach that I've worked with, uh, he said that many of his clients are realizing that their fears were unwarranted and that God, like if we ever get out of this situation, I'm never going to take it for granted again that I can talk to a stranger. Mm. And I, part of me wonders if that's actually going to happen, but you have the research to back it up. So uh, well, not, you know, I mean, obviously you don't know what's going to happen, but based on what you know, like what do you anticipate is going to happen um, when it comes to talking to strangers after all of this is done? Well, I'm going to, I'll get to some, some data, but um, just, I'll just start with my personal experience. When, when COVID sort of first came about, we were, we got locked down here in the UK and we were only allowed to leave the house for groceries and an hour every day for exercise. And I'm really lucky because I have a park across the street from me. And so every day I'd, you know, because I could, I'd go out and I'd walk around the park. And, you know, I, I've gotten into a habit of talking to strangers, as I mentioned. And so normally I would be saying hi and talking to people in the park. But when COVID was new, people felt scary. And I was not looking at people. Anytime I passed someone, I was sort of, you know, turning my back almost because they started feeling like a threat. And so it took a real effort to, to get over that and start to feel okay again that, you know, even though we need to keep our distance, I could still smile at people. I could still acknowledge them. And, you know, in a way it's easier to connect with people now because we're all going through this crazy thing together. Um, and so, yeah, I think, it, I think it could go either way. I think, it, you know, some people are probably going to focus on the threat, um, and be a little bit more worried, but yeah. other people, I mean, lots of people have told me stories about how they've met their neighbors now and they'd never met them before, but because of yeah. everything that's going on, they've started a WhatsApp group with their neighbors or, you know, everybody was outside clapping for the NHS. Um, and I think people have maybe noticed the delivery drivers and how helpful they are and noticed the people who are working at the grocery store and, and maybe having a chat with those people. My mom was telling me she saw the, the garbage truck come, come by and she ran out and she just felt this urge to say thank you to the driver. And, and he saw her run out and he thought, Oh no, what's wrong? <laughs> and uh, you know, she just, she just wanted to say thank you. Um, and so I think I think a lot of us have had those feelings as well, like feeling more connected and grateful for other people. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I think I I hope I hope that's true. I hope we will connect more. Um, like I said, I mean, I think it's easier. To, I, th I think we're looking for information a lot right now, and so that's yeah. something we we want to talk to people and see, you know, what what are things like where you are and what are you doing and how are you coping, um, and we can get all that from from strangers as well as we can from other people in our lives. Um, yeah. And it's really easy to start a conversation because we have this major thing in common, so you don't have to worry about what am I going to say. Um, you can say this is pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. So I think in some ways it's it's easier. Um. But but I I can talk a little bit about data yeah. too. So um. 
you know, COVID came along and a lot of, a lot of psychologists are like, Ooh, uh, you know, what's, co- <laughs> what's COVID doing to people? We, we need to know this. Everyone is like, we got to do some research right now. Um, but t- t- you know, t- to see if COVID has changed things, you really need to have data before COVID <laughs> as well right. as during COVID, right? And we can't travel back in time. Uh, <laughs> but um, I did a study last year, year and a half ago, um, where uh, I had people I have to back up a little bit. I've run a lot of studies where I sort of induce people to talk to a stranger. Either I ask them to approach someone and talk to them, or I have them in the lab and I give them a partner to talk to. Um, and in all of these studies, I'm, I'm asking people before the conversation, what do they think is going to happen? And then afterwards, you know, what did happen? And Every single time, you know, people say that they worried far more than they needed to because the things they worried about didn't actually happen and they enjoyed it more than they thought and they think the other person liked them more than they thought. Um, But when I asked people, okay, what if you had to talk to another person right now? It didn't seem to stick. You know, people think, well, just because I had a nice conversation with Jennifer doesn't mean that I'll have a nice conversation with Mark. Mark is a very different person than Jennifer. So, you know, why would I think that those two conversations would have anything in common? Um, Which is neglecting the fact that you are participating in both of those conversations (laughs) and that you do have some control over how things go. Um, And so I thought, okay, what I want to do is have people talk to several strangers. And if they do that, maybe I can convince them that there's a pattern and that generally those conversations go well. So that it's not just writing off the one conversation as an, you know, exception, but, you know, forcing them to see that actually pretty much always goes okay. And so I I ran a study and I thought, well, how am I going to get people to do this? How how am I going to you know, induce people to have multiple conversations when generally people don't want to talk to strangers in the first place. And so the only thing I could think of was to try and turn it into a game. Um, so I ran this study where I did a scavenger hunt and uh, it's, uh, I had all these different missions that people could do. So they were things like find someone who's wearing a hat or find someone who's drinking a coffee. And then you're supposed to go up to that person and have a little chat. Um, and so the idea, like I said, was to see if I could induce some long-term change by showing people this pattern. And so I made the scavenger hunt app available to anybody who wanted to use it. And it's actually, it's still out there. If any listeners want to try it out, it's free. Um, and, uh, so quite, uh, quite a few people downloaded the app and tried it out and had answered a bunch of questions on surveys in the app. And then when COVID hit, I contacted those people again. So I so I had their data from before COVID and I could compare it to what they were saying now. And so mm-hmm. once COVID hit, I asked them, you know, imagine that you were going to talk to a stranger right now. Now I said, you know, think about it as being on Zoom or Skype or something like that, because obviously we don't. It's, it's a very weird situation to talk to a stranger in person these days. So, you know, imagine that it's electronically mediated, um, and ask people to predict how it would go. Um, and so, yeah, the, the predictions were a lot more positive than they were before COVID, but that could Uh be for a number of reasons. You know, it could be that, you know, it, it, 
didn't involve approaching someone. So it's a little less scary because of that. Maybe it's less scary to talk to someone over Zoom than it would be to approach them and talk to them in person. I was going to ask you about that. So, that, you know, what is the the difference? Because I was, I couldn't help but think that as we were talking, I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, how people, uh, you know, deal with, like, how is their reaction when they're talking to to a person you know, via Zoom? Because there is sort of like almost a safety behind behind a screen. Like, oh, yeah. you know, if this goes haywire, I can just hang up. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I haven't, yeah. So I, I, you know, the fact that their predictions were more positive during COVID is hard to really draw any conclusions from because there's so many yeah. differences. Um, but at the end of the survey, I said to people, okay, would you like to actually talk to a stranger now? Like I will connect you to someone else who's doing the study. Um, And something like 60% of people said, yeah, I would like to talk to a stranger. And uh, about 60% of those actually followed through and did have a conversation with a stranger. Some of them even recorded their conversations and sent them to me. So that was really cool. Um, But one of the things that came out is I asked people, um, before and after they had this conversation. Um, Some questions about loneliness, some questions about their perceptions about other people, like so their feelings of trust in people in general and how benevolent they thought other people were, like how good are other people? Are other people sort of out to get you or are they generally good and fair and nice? Um, And all of those things showed an improvement after having one conversation with a stranger during COVID. So people reported being feeling less lonely after having this conversation and they, and they reported feeling more positive about other people. Um, And their conversations were really quite long. Like I I asked them to predict how long such a conversation would be. And they said something like 12 minutes, I think. Um, But on average, their conversations were 40 something minutes. I hit dead ends with my dad in 15 minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it, and it was just, it, just the coolest thing to work on during COVID because it was just yeah. so nice to hear, you know, some people didn't really hit it off with their partner. I mean, I matched them up based on nothing, no criteria other than which time zone they were in. So yeah, not, not all people had a really great conversation or were, had any interest in talking to their partner again. But early on, like one of the first pairs that I connected, um, these two women, I guess, really hit it off. And they emailed me and afterwards and they said, you know, is it okay if we talk to each other again? <laughs> I think they're being very kind, you know, like we don't want to mess up your research, but you know, would it be okay? And I was like, yeah, great. <laughs> um, so, so it was a really lovely thing to work on during COVID. It sort of felt really nice to me to have facilitated a lot of pleasant conversations that people seem to really benefit from. Uh, wow. All right. So a couple more questions for you. I know that you're doing um, research in a new area that um, I wanted to ask you about and you wanted to share with our listeners. I know you're looking for people to actually volunteer, I'm right? And you've got thousands right now who <laughs> might actually be for you. So um, tell them what you're working on and then I'll ask you my two last questions. Okay. Well, so I, most of my research to date has been on looking at conversations with strangers. Um, but it occurred to me one day, sort of out of the blue, as sometimes ideas do occur, um, that that's not the only kind of conversation that feels awkward and has barriers. Um, and so one thing, one example that came to mind is talking to someone who's been through something difficult. So talking to someone who's been diagnosed with cancer or, lost someone close to them or experienced a miscarriage or, you know, 
many, many different things that could occur. And in all those situations, I mean, we hear the stories about how people really learn who their friends are because people just kind of disappear. And I don't think it's because people are, you know, not good. I think people want to help and want to be supportive, but they're just really afraid that they might say the wrong thing and they don't know what they should say. And so they choose, unfortunately, to say nothing at all. And so that that's what I decided that I wanted to look at next is, you know, I'm a psychologist. I can't cure cancer, um, but maybe I can help make life a little bit better for someone with cancer by figuring out how to make it easier to talk to them and not say something stupid that's going to be unhelpful. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm doing a study now where I'm looking for people who've experienced one of these difficult situations. So specifically um, have had a cancer diagnosis or experienced a miscarriage or lost someone close to them fairly recently. So in the last two years, ideally. Um, and, And what I want to know from those people, I want to hear about their experiences, about what people have said to them um, in an attempt to provide support and and how helpful those things have been. So I have an, an online survey that I'd be extremely grateful for any help. Um, and people can find a link to that on my Twitter page. So my Twitter handle is uh, Jillian Social um, or on my web page, which is JillianSandstrom.com. Super cool. So I have two last questions for you. Um, one did you meet your husband by starting a conversation with a stranger? And if not, what is the most memorable conversation you think you've had with a stranger? <laughs> um, well, I met my husband. Uh, we both were in the same uh, program at university, but we didn't really know each other then. So we knew of each other, because, you know, we crossed paths, but we hadn't really hung out or spent any time together. Um, and then 10 years later, uh, I, I was at the opera and I saw him and I thought, hey, I know that guy. And so I went over and started talking to him. Um, and and then I realized, actually, I didn't really know him. I mean, I, I did, but I didn't, you know. Um, so it wasn't quite t- a talking to strangers situation, but it, it was, uh, you know, he was pretty close to a stranger at that point. Um, yeah. Most memorable. <laughs> That's probably got to be hard. It's like people who ask me, who's your favorite podcast guest? I, I did have a chat on the on the tube once. Um, it was right around New Year's. I think it was this year, actually. And and I probably freaked the poor guy out because I, he was sitting across the aisle from me on the tube. And my husband was there. And that always makes me feel a little bit better. Like, hopefully, if I start talking to a man, he realizes that I'm, you know not trying to hit on him. But uh, I saw that this guy had a had a lanyard on and he had this badge that said something about the London fireworks. And so I was like, I got to talk to this guy. And so I, I crossed over to the other side of the train and sat beside him. And I was like, hey, I saw your badge. If you, are you working on the fireworks? Um, and it turned out that he'd worked on all sorts of special events. He'd been involved in the London Olympics. And um, and he told me this amazing story about how he'd worked on the Graham Norton show, which is a talk show in the UK, which is super awesome. Um, and uh, he had, uh, Lady Gaga had basically fallen in his lap. <laughs> so that was an entertaining story. But. Wow. <laughs> all right. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Because of the unmistakable creative thing. Got it. Um, <laughs> hmm. 
no, you should have warned me about this. Uh, clearly, I needed to listen all the way through to an end of one of your podcasts. I'm um, kind of glad you didn't because now I'm, <laughs> you won't be influenced by other people's answers. What makes someone unmistakable? What does that even mean? You mean like different from other people? Like unique? You know, it's funny. So when you write a book called Unmistakable, apparently you have to define what it means or your editor will hate your guts. So I defined it as something that is so distinctive that nobody else could have done it but you. It's something you don't have to put your signature on. It's recognized as your work or your expression of whatever it is that you've done. I uh, I wish I had a really great answer to your question, but I, I have no idea. What have other people said? Um, because you know, I, I creative creativity is not like I, I always thought that I was not a creative person, and that's because my one definition of creativity was the idea that you had to come up with something new and exciting that no one had ever done before. And then I realized, at least as far as how psychologists study creativity, that there's another kind, which is about making connections between things that have never been connected before, you know, making sort of unusual associations. And I thought, okay, I can do that. That's my kind of creativity. So tell me what other people have said, and maybe that'll spark something for me. Well, no, I mean, I think that's a great answer, but I mean, it's ranged from sort of, you know, authenticity, which, you know, often people say, I know this sounds generic and it's, you know, there have been really interesting ones. Some of the, there are certain ones that are really memorable, but other ones, they, they sound very similar. Um, and so it's just one of those things that I'm always curious to see how people answer. Uh, some of them have said generosity. It, it ranges all over the board, but you know there are definitely common themes. Authenticity comes up over and over again. Um, but I think what you brought up was actually perfect. That is like in my mind uh, a really interesting place to actually you know uh, use that as your own definition. All right, uh, because cool. I think that you know everybody has their own definitions, which is what makes it interesting. I think I think it's a very hopeful thought, right? You know, like it it's it's less pressure, a less pressured kind of creativity. And I think it's something we can all do is we're all, I mean, that's basically what we're doing in life, right? We're seeing seeing what other people do and what other people choose and and we're saying, "Well, I like this bit, I don't like that bit." And you're sort of putting it together in your own way. Hmm. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, just in case they didn't hear you the first time when you were talking about your research, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Uh, my website is jilliansandstrom.com. So that actually comes from Swedish. My my dad's got Swedish ancestry. So it's strom, not storm, not sandstorm. Strom actually means stream. So it's like, my surname means Sandy Stream. <laughs> um, so JillianSandstrom.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.